All right, guys, you are locked on Falcons. I'm your host, Aaron Freeman, and today I am giving you my year-end positional review of the Falcons' offensive line position, where we look back at the collective and individual components of the Falcons' offensive line in 2019. You are locked on Falcons, your daily Atlanta Falcons podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. So, guys, you know me. I'm Aaron Freeman. Been covering the Falcons for many years. I'm on Twitter at Falcons, and of course, the host of this sumptuous Locked On Falcons podcast, your daily Atlanta Falcons podcast. And today is the year-end review of the offensive line. We've been going day by day for the last week or so, uh, breaking down each position group, um, starting with the quarterbacks last week and continuing and wrapping up the offense today with the offensive line group. This is going to be a pretty long episode because unlike some of these other positions where we're talking about three to five players, we're going to wind up talking about 14 players and there's a lot to talk about with the offensive line and truth be told, I probably should have split this into two episodes, but look, we need to get through this through the month of January so we can move on to bigger and better things. Um, But I have a lot to say on today's episode and we'll sort of start off things by talking about the sort of stats and what they say about how good or bad this offensive line was in 2019. Then we'll sort of get into sort of the individual assessments, looking at all 14 Right. Is it 14? I'm sorry. I can't do math. 11. For some reason in my head, I thought 14. All 11. I was like, I didn't break down 14 guys. All 11 offensive linemen currently on the Falcons roster. And then we'll sort of look ahead to 2020 and sort of how the Falcons can potentially fix their offensive line, which is probably a three-part episode if we're being completely honest. But I will do my best to condense it into 15 to 20 minutes on today's episode. So definitely want to stay tuned um, to today's episode and you know, I'm wasting time now and uh, let's jump right in to that locked on Falcons lead story. So the nature of the offensive line means that it's sort of difficult to assess how good or bad a unit is because when typically when an offensive line is performing well, they're mostly invisible. You don't really notice them. And when they're performing poorly, they become a lot more visible, particularly when it comes to pass protection. So I think it's definitely worthwhile to really look back at the Falcons offensive line and looking at some of the stats and what they say and visiting four different websites, ESPN, Pro Football Focus, Football Outsiders, and Sharp Football Stats to sort of really glean an an overall picture that will essentially wind up telling us that the Falcons offensive line wasn't particularly good this past season, but maybe it will help us identify sort of specific issues that were particularly problematic. Looking at ESPN's pass block win rate, which is basically their metric that looks at offensive linemen and whether or not they can sustain their blocks for two and a half seconds or longer as a win. And when they can't as a loss, the Falcons collectively as an offensive line ranked 29th in the NFL this past season in that metric. Moving on to pro football focus is pass blocking efficiency metric, which looks at how many times a team gave up sacks, hits and hurries relative to when they were asked to pass protect the Falcons ranked 22nd in the league in that metric. Moving on to Football Outsiders, which is more focused on their run blocking based off of Football Outsiders adjusted line yards metric, which is trying to attribute how much of yards per carry is to the offensive line versus the running backs. Um, The Falcons, in terms of their offensive line, ranked 24th in the NFL this past season. They were 
roughly average when it came to running on short yardage situations based off of football outsiders power success metric. They were 18th in that measure in terms of giving up negative runs. However, they were 27th in the league. So near the bottom of the league in terms of pass protection. However, they fared a lot better in their adjusted sack rate metric, which looks at how many sacks a team gives up based off of down and distance. And the Falcons were 13th in that regard. Moving on to sharp football stats, which we're looking at rushing success rate based off of um, overall in comparison to the league and as well as direction in which the Falcons ran the football. In overall success rate, the Falcons ranked 24th in the NFL, and success rate is a better way of measuring rushing efficiency than yards per carry uh, because yards per carry tends to be skewed by long runs, and rushing success rate is basing you know, your running distance based off of down and distance. Um, so they were 24th in terms of rushing efficiency when measured by a success rate this past season. However, it's n- worth noting that in the five games that Chris Lindstrom started at the right guard position, the Falcons would have ranked 17th in the NFL. When you look at their success rate on first downs, they were 30th in the NFL overall. However, again, in the five games that Chris Lindstrom started, they were 21st on first down rushing success rate this past season. When you look at the directional success rate they had in comparison to the average success rate across the league, they did their best job running behind left tackle Jake Matthews with their success rate being about five percentage points higher than the league average when running to the left tackle position. They were plus 3% points over league average when running behind the right guard position overall this season. And that moved up to plus 8% in the five games where Chris Lindstrom was starting their next best area. When looking at the individual starters was the right tackle position. They were slightly below average with minus two percentage points below league average in terms of success rate. But again, in the five games where Lindstrom played that moved up to plus 8% uh, with Lindstrom starting next to right tackle, Kayla McGarry. They struggled a little bit more running up the middle, particularly behind the left guard position where they were 18 percentage points below average in comparison to the league average. However, in the eight or so games that Chris, that Wes Schweitzer was starting at left guard over James Carpenter, that was minus 11%. And we also saw improvement from the center position as well with both Lindstrom and Schweitzer in the lineup. Overall, the Falcons were minus 7% when running behind center Alex Mack this season, but with Lindstrom in the lineup, that was only minus 3%, and with Schweitzer in the lineup at the left guard present, it was minus 4%. So you saw some issues with the continuity there with the Falcons' offensive line on that interior, and it clearly showed that you know left guard was a major liability for the team when it came to the running game this past season. So we will continue today's conversation by focusing on some of the individual performances of the Falcons offensive line. So we'll look at the 11 starting or 11 current Falcons offensive linemen and sort of quickly sort of assess their individual performances this season. But you kind of already got a general idea of sort of who was good, who was bad based off of some of that stuff, particularly when it came to the running game stuff. Um, And uh, we're talking about the struggles of the Falcons offensive line, but we know there are teams that aren't necessarily having issues on their offensive line because they're still playing football. It's hard to believe that we're already at the conference championship week. Playoffs are almost over 
and you guys still have time to feed your fantasy fix with DraftKings, the leader in one day fantasy football. All you have to do is draft your lineup and feel that sweat like never before. Every Derrick Henry run, every Patrick Mahomes throw and Devontae Adams catch means even more with a DraftKings lineup on the line. It's simple. Just draft your lineup, stay under the salary cap and see how your team stacks up against the competition. Nothing adds to the sweat of watching these games quite like having a free shot at over $750,000 with your first deposit. Plus, for a limited time, all new and existing users can get a deposit bonus up to $500. Just download the DraftKings app right now and use the promo code Locked On For a limited time, both new and existing users can get a deposit bonus up to $500 on your next deposit with that promo code. And new users, be sure to enter that promo code Locked On during sign-up, and you'll also get a free shot at over $750,000 with your first deposit. Again, that's code locked on to get up to a $500 deposit bonus only at DraftKings. So let's jump into the sort of individual breakdowns and we'll start with the offensive tackles. We'll start with Jake Matthews. He was the best of the bunch. He wound up playing 99.9% of the Falcon snaps. The 0.1% he missed was basically due to garbage time, not because of injury. He finished Number 10 overall in pro football focuses, offensive tackle grades. He was number six in their pass blocking grades. He was number 15 in pass blocking efficiency and number 35 in their run blocking grades. So across the board, he was above average run blocker and basically borderline elite as far as a pass protection. I've said what I've thought about Jake earlier this month when we went through the year in reviews, giving him my offensive player of the year. I think he's very underrated by a very vocal minority of Falcon fans that are butthurt about Jake Matthews. I think butthurt about his contract and maybe a few of them still butthurt about drafting him in, instead of getting Khalil Mack or Aaron Donald or whoever uh, in that 2014 draft. But I think Jake Matthews, the bottom line has been, he's been playing lights out for the Falcons these last two years. He's been as good as any left tackle the Falcons have had in the past 20 plus years. You know, the way that the Falcons perform, they asked him to play on an Island uh, in pass protection. And I, as I said earlier, the the results were clearly there that he's one of their more efficient run blockers. When they run behind him, they run the majority of the time behind him and it paid off for the Falcons, at least in terms of their efficiency running behind him this past year. Even when you look at their adjusted line yards, when running left tackle this past year, they were number 13 in the league as well. So, you know, I think it's the nature of the offensive line position where, you know, guys are going to get beat, particularly when you're a left tackle. And again, you get left on an island against some of the premier pass rushers in the league. But we've seen Jake shut down some some really quality pass rushers over the last two years. You have Nick Bosa. I mean, yeah, Nick Bosa. I was confusing with Joey. Nick Bosa, Miles Garrett, Olivier Vernon, Chandler Jones, Yannick Ngakwe. He's gone toe-to-toe with some guys. And, you know, he's had some struggles against certain guys like Everson Griffin and, and others. But for the most part, I think you trust Jake Matthews to continue to play at a high level in this league and be one of the better left tackles in the league. And that's all you can really ask for. I don't know what else you want from him uh, in that regard. Moving across the line to Caleb McGarry in his rookie season, not a particularly great season. He was number 77 in overall grade, number 79 in pass blocking grade, number 59 in pass blocking efficiency, and number 66 in run blocking grade, according to Pro Football Focus. All of those well, well below average at the position. What's notable to me is there were five games where 
McGarry's pass blocking grade was below 50. And it was notable to me that four out of those five games were also among the five games where he was asked to pass block 50 plus times in those games. So it seemed like in those games where the Falcons became very pass happy, particularly this season, we saw Caleb McGarry get exposed a lot more. And, you know, we expected him to go through growing pains as a rookie. We knew there were going to be ups. There were going to be bad. And I think that's what we got. The good was good. The bad was bad. I think he's got to refine his technique. I think he's got to win early in the reps on downs. That's where he's going to have to win because he doesn't necessarily have that elite athleticism like a Jake Matthews to recover. If he doesn't win sort of off of that initial contact and win with that punch and win with his hands initially in the first, you know, second and a half of when the ball is snapped. So that's really where he's going to have to work on his game. And I think he can and continue to improve as the years go by. Um, moving on to Alex Mack, he was number eight overall among centers. According to pro football focus and overall grade, he was number 10 in pass blocking grade, number 26 in pass blocking efficiency and number seven in run blocking grade among centers. This still, you know, even though he was a top 10 center based off of pro football focus grades, it was the worst season of Matt of Alex Mack's career. Um, but the good thing is that he graded pretty well down the stretch. You know, I still think there was too many times, certainly over those last five or six games where he gave up a little bit too much pressure, particularly when he was blocking one-on-one, but we at least saw him make big improvements in terms of his running block, his run blocking, returning the form. You know, he had that early season elbow injury that I think certainly was affecting him for a good chunk of the year and probably was a big reason why his performance was down for most of the year. And I think probably continued to struggle even late in the season uh, when he was asked to pass protect one on one. Um, But we didn't quite see him hitting those second level blocks early in the season. And I think a lot of that may have to do with the blocking scheme, which we'll get into later on today's episode. So I'm not necessarily as concerned about Alex Mack taking a dip this season, particularly when he was able to sort of turn things around late in the year. James Carpenter, when we get into the guard conversation, let's start with the worst. Let's go from worst to to first, I guess. Uh, James Carpenter, number 79 overall. In terms of pro football focus grade among guards, number 77 in pass blocking grade, number 74 in pass blocking efficiency, and number 77 in run blocking grade. So we we know Carpenter went into the season a little beat up. He was dealing with a hip injury, was a little stiff during the summer. And I don't think he ever really got going at any point this season. Maybe that's owed to the hip injury. Uh, that's again, that's above my pay grade, but I particularly thought he was a little bit of a liability as a run blocker more often than not. And I think that was a big reason why the run game never really got going. And, and it really, we got better results once he was out of the lineup towards the second half of the season, but it never was good uh, even with him out of the lineup. So Again, I, I don't know how much I would blame on injuries because Carpenter's never really been a great run blocker, at least in the NFL. Um, that's never really been his strength, even though you know he had this reputation at Alabama of being this great run blocker. But that's never really been something he's been particularly adept at. So it was more of the same, if you ask me. So I don't know how much I would blame the hip injury on some of the stuff. Maybe I would blame the hip on the pass blocking being deficient because that was an area of his game that was stronger in previous years, but at a certain point, maybe you'll lose it. So we're going from worst to first. Let's, let's talk about Chris Lindstrom, even though he didn't play a ton of games, only started five games. He had the number 22 overall grade among of guards in the NFL, according to pro football focus, he was number 49 in pass blocking number 65 in pass blocking efficiency, which is not great. Um, but he was number 14 in run blocking. And, you know, 
when I was keying on Lindstrom for those five games, I don't think he's ever stood out as sexy. You're not going to necessarily confuse him with Quentin Nelson out there in terms of him being out there and being a dominant player or anything like that. But he got the job done when he was out there on the field. He was far from perfect, but he was solid. He was steady for the most part. And, you know, I thought that showed off in the ground game. And obviously you wonder sort of if he had been healthier for a longer period of time, how much would be we be concerned about the offensive line? Would it have been serviceable, closer to serviceable than quote unquote bad as it seemed to be for most of last season? And that's going to be a, an interesting question that we're going to have to see how that develops in 2020. But, you know, the last thing I'll say about uh, Chris Lindstrom is, you know, I think he's got a bright future ahead of us. Um, again, I don't know if he's going to be this dominant, you know, elite right guard. You know, he might be just another Jake Matthews type of guy, a guy that gets the job done, but is never going to be sexy, you know, doing it or anything like that. So I'm, I'm excited to see what he can develop if he can get a full season under his belt and see if, you know, that assessment is wrong and he's going to be a lot better than I think. But uh, I'm certainly very optimistic about his future uh, coming up. Moving on to Jamon Brown, not a, again, not another great year for him. Uh, number 65 overall, according to Pro Football Focus, number 62 in pass blocking grade, number 36 in pass blocking efficiency, number 63 in run blocking grade. So I think Jamon Brown had an interesting season because I think he got a worse rap than he particularly deserved, particularly late in the season when he wound up being benched and was a healthy scratch and people were like, oh, they're, they're you know, he's bad or whatever. And it's like, I don't, I don't know about that. I feel like his situation was very similar to the Ben Garland situation a year ago. And for those of you that don't recall, Ben Garland, in my eyes, and the numbers clearly bear it out, was a clear upgrade over the Brandon Fusco at the right guard position when he got inserted into the lineup and played pretty well for like three or four games in a row. And it clearly the Falcons had benefited, but because the Falcons were going through some issues with their offensive line. And then Ben Garland had a really bad performance against the saints and, and Sheldon Rankins, I think around week 12, um, he got benched the next week and I continue to maintain and will remain maintain in, until the, my dying day that Ben Garland was the best guard the Falcons had on the team in 2018, but because they were looking to shake things up and he happened to have the worst game the week before when they were looking to shake things up, he was the guy that sort of got scapegoated and got benched. And I think the same sort of thing happened with Jamon Brown. He, to me, he clearly was outplaying James Carpenter for pretty much the first half of the season. But then he had a sort of a rough outing against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in week 12 again. And the Falcons wanted to shake things up after giving up six sacks to that Bucks team. And because Brown was like the worst guy on the team that week, he was the guy that sort of like, well, we have to bench you instead of Javon Brown. So basically he had his worst game at the worst possible time. And I think it was a similar situation with, with Ben Garland the year prior. Now, unlike Ben Garland, I'm not going to sit here and try to convince you that Jamon Brown was the best guard on the team, but I will sit here and tell you that he was not the worst guard on the team. And so, you know, what's going to be interesting with Jamon Brown is like several other players, injuries were an issue with the season. There were several games where he was unable to finish, where he was able to miss snaps because he was dealing with various injuries. You know, there was back issues. I think there was a knee issue. There was an elbow issue, a shoulder, issue, you know, various hand issue, all these types of injuries. So he was constantly beat up. Maybe that led to maybe a dip in his play as the season wore on because he just, these injuries kept draining on him. 
And that may be the case again. That's above my pay grade. Um, but I, I wouldn't necessarily think, oh, just because Jamon Brown got benched, he was the worst guard. I think that would be a lazy uh, assessment. Um, last guy among the starters um, is Wes Schweitzer, uh, who was slightly better than Jamon Brown in terms of his grades, number 60 overall, number 60 in pass blocking grade, number 56 in pass blocking efficiency, number 54 in run blocking grade. You know, what's interesting with Schweitzer, and this was something I noticed when comparing Schweitzer's 2017 to his 2018, but it did seem like he was more effective as a left guard in 2019 than he was as a right guard. When you look at the eight games where he was primarily a left guard playing about 467 snaps at that left guard position, his overall grade was about a 59.9. His pass blocking grade was a 63.7 and his run blocking grade was a 58.7. When you look at the five games where he played right guard were about 197 snaps at that right guard position. His overall grade was a 50.1. His pass blocking grade was a 48. Eight and his run blocking grade was a 47. So his pass blocking grade was about 15 points higher as a left guard versus a right guard. His run blocking grade was about 11, 12 points higher um, as a left guard versus a right guard. His overall grade was about 10 points higher. So what's interesting to me is uh, my, my personal theory on why that is, is it probably has a lot to do with the fact that Wes Schweitzer was almost exclusively a left tackle in college. And so his football work when working on the left side, whether as a left guard is more natural to him. And so he's a little bit more comfortable playing on the left side versus the right side. And secondly, I think the other issue is that teams and the Falcons are one of them tend to slide their protections to the left. So generally speaking, the left guard is going to get more help from the center than the right guard is. And so essentially when Schweitzer is playing right guard, like he was in 2017 in parts of 2019, and then being left on an island, like he gets exposed a lot more. But when he's playing left guard, you're getting a guy that's performing much closer to basically a league average starter, which is what he was um, in 2019, as well as in parts of 2018 and actually an above average starter for large chunks of 2018 as well at that left guard position. So something to keep an eye on uh, when we get when we look ahead to Schweitzer's potential and future in the NFL and potentially in Atlanta moving forward. The last couple of guys we want to talk about are the reserves, Ty Sambrello. Did get some early reps at the right tackle position when he was split in time with Caleb McGarry due to his, you know, summer injury, summer heart issue. Um, but, you know, we didn't really see Sambrello play particularly well in that role. Then we got a couple of snaps as a guard later in the season as a quick fill in when there was an injury or whatever. But for the most part, he was sort of like a blocking tight end when the Falcons went to some three tight end looks or when they had some goal line situations. And then. You know, we saw that particularly in week 13 when they basically ran out of bodies at the tight end position due to injuries. The highlight of his season wasn't anything he did as an offensive lineman. It was that 35-yard touchdown he had in week 17 working as a tight end against the Buccaneers on a busted coverage. The the positive thing you can say about Tyson Brello is that versatility. He can play tackle, he can play guard, and he can play tight end. Um, essentially, you know, the, the best thing maybe you could say about Ty Sambrello's future in the NFL is he needs to do a reverse DJT Alavea, maybe drop 30 pounds and be converted to a tight end. And, you know, that would intrigue me a lot more uh, about his potential and his future than necessarily seeing him as a, as a tackle or an offensive lineman moving forward. Moving on to Matt Gano. 
We saw him get extended reps at the right guard position in week 14, and he performed well in that role. We saw him get a couple of snaps at the left guard uh, for a series in week 17 against the Buccaneers. He didn't perform particularly well when he was asked to do that. The positives you can say about Matt Gano is he's very close to starting week one at the right tackle position with McGarry coming back from his heart issue and Sam Brelo being Sam Brelo. Uh, but then he got hurt himself, and that basically ruined his chance. And so one wonders, will we get to see him get extended? opportunities in 2020, particularly as an interior player. You know, we've been intrigued by Gano's potential for the past two years as an offensive tackle. And really 2019 was a missed opportunity there in terms of his offensive tackle position, but maybe it creates an opportunity for him as a guard. And particularly if the Falcons move back to an outside zone scheme, he might be the best current option on the roster in terms of filling in that left guard position. John Wetzel, we saw the main thing with John Wetzel is we saw him get cut five times and resign five times over the course of the season. There were basically four times where he was cut the day before a game, uh, when the Falcons needed to make a last minute roster move. Um, we did see him get some action at left guard in week 14, and I thought he was pretty solid. He was basically invisible, which actually you could argue was an upgrade given that some of the other guys at the Falcons had at left guard and Schweizer and Carpenter were anything but invisible uh, for that stretch of the game that he got to play against Carolina. So, um, you know, I thought he did a solid job. He's a valuable backup, has experience playing in this league uh, at this level at four out of the five offensive line positions. So that's really where his value is. The last offensive lineman we'll talk about is Sean Harlow. We saw him get a late season elevation from the practice squad, add some depth at the center position. Once James Carpenter went on IR and Schweitzer was asked to permanently, permanently fill in at the left guard position. He played one snap at the center position when the Falcons were in victory formation in week 11 against Carolina. Uh, maybe we'll, We'll get to see some extended reps this upcoming preseason with Harlow at the center position, which is something I've personally been clamoring to want to see since the 2018 preseason. Uh, but alas, we haven't really gotten to see that. So maybe 2020 is, is, is a brand new year for Sean Harlow. So there's my assessment of all 11 of the Falcons offensive linemen. And we'll sort of wrap up today by taking a deeper look at sort of what the Falcons can do to fix their offensive line come 2020, whether that's via free agency, whether that's via cap cuts, whether that's via the draft or a scheme change. Um, but before we get there, I do think I should plug the MLB side of the lockdown podcast network, where you can find a daily podcast devoted to most of the major league baseball teams, including the Atlanta Braves. Check out the lockdown Braves podcast on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. So the big question is, how do the Falcons fix their offensive line? Well, I think the, the first thing and the easiest thing and the simplest thing is, hey, just go back to the outside zone blocking scheme. You know, D Dan Quinn lied to us when he said last year, a year ago, that oh, the scheme's not going to change with Dirk Cutter. Uh, that was not the case. It did change. They ran a lot more inside zone than they did outside zone. They barely ran outside zone for large chunks of the season. You know, they would sprinkle in a couple of outside zone runs here or there, but it didn't seem like for a lot of games, it seemed like at most they would run three or four, maybe five outside zone plays out of like the 15 to 20 runs that they would have in those games. Um, and you know, that's just not a staple of your offense. And the question of course is why did they make that switch? It didn't seem necessary. Um, my best guess is, you know, maybe dirt cutter wasn't comfortable with it. Maybe because they were going away from a, you know, 
going to more of a shotgun heavy straight drop back passing game versus the rollout heavy play action stuff that typically you want to incorporate with your outside zone scheme. That's one of the reasons why they went away from it. And the inside zone makes a lot more sense with the type of offense that Cutter wanted to run versus what we've traditionally run with Shanahan and then Sarkeesian. It could have been the fact that um, despite guys like Carpenter and Brown having experience running outside zone in Seattle, in New York, in New York, uh, with the Giants, with Brown, and then in um, L.A. with the Rams, the Falcons weren't thrilled about Brown and Carpenter's ability to fit in a true outside zone scheme as we have run it um, and felt like more inside zone would fit those guys better. Why you would tailor your run scheme around arguably the weakest links that you have up front, I, I don't know. But as I've said a number of times over the years, this run scheme, particularly the outside zone scheme, works the best when you have those interior guys that are basically heat-seeking missiles at the second level, creating those second-level runs. And I think that's a big reason why you didn't see as many sort of you know long runs from this Falcon team this past year, particularly with a guy like Devontae Freeman, who's really good at finding those creases in those cutback lanes. Um, and we've seen this play out with the Falcons when they had Chester and Levitri operating at a high level. You saw the run game click. You saw this in 2018, as I mentioned before, when you inserted Bing Garland over Brandon Fusco at the right guard position. And I think you saw it this past year with Lindstrom um, at the right guard position, as well as for that game with Gano there at the left guard position, two guys that were much more effective taking out linebackers and, and whatnot at the second level than their counterparts on this team. And so whether you want to blame Thomas Dimitrov, Dan Quinn, Chris Morgan, or Dirk Cutter, it's been very frustrating for me watching this organization, this coaching staff, this front office, whoever basically still hasn't been able to figure out this reality that, you know, getting these heat seeking missiles at the interior position works. And, you know, I, I don't know why this team can't figure that out. And then you sort of couple that when you look around the league. We talked about the conference championship games earlier uh, when, when plugging DraftKings. But it's like, look at, you know, all you're hearing now, all I'm uh, turning on the TV and hearing Tony Romo talk about the importance of running the football in the postseason. And, you know, you got the the analytics people that are saying passing, 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 and then all the quote unquote non-analytics people, the football people, whatever you want to call them saying, no, running, running, running. And so this is the constant debate that you're hearing now. And you can sit there and say, oh, look at the teams that are still left in, in, in the postseason. All these teams can run the football, right? Or at least three out of these four teams are pretty competent running football. It's really only two. But, um, you know, what's interesting to me is three out of these four teams run outside zone. Green Bay runs outside zone. San Francisco runs outside zone. Tennessee runs outside zone because they all basically took the Shanahan offense. And I'm not referring to Kyle. I'm referring to Mike, right? You know, Kyle's a disciple of Mike, right? Matt LaFleur is a disciple of Kyle. And he brought that to Tennessee. And all of a sudden you saw Derrick Henry explode last season uh, when he started running outside zone versus what Mike Malarkey and his quote unquote exotic smash mouth run game. You know, that's when people were like, oh, Mike Malarkey is going to help fix our running game. Like, no, he's not. Mike Malarkey is terrible. <laughs> um, but you've seen Green Bay and LaFour brought that to, to Green Bay. And you're seeing these teams are able to run the ball. And then you even look at Kansas City. Obviously, they're a pass-first offense. But zone blocking has been an integral part of um, Andy Reid's run scheme. 
You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't categorize them as an outside zone team, but they certainly run a healthy amount of outside zone and inside zone and whatnot uh, as part of Andy Reid's offense. That was a thing that's been a staple of his offense in Kansas City. It's been a staple of his offense back in Philadelphia days as well. So it's one of those things where I'm just looking at, okay, if, you, if you're one of these people that believes that running the football matters and is the key to the Falcon team getting over the, the hurdle, then you should be sitting there looking at this, all these other teams currently competing and be like, yeah, we need to do what they do. We need to go back to what we were doing. Why, why do we stop doing it? It doesn't make any sense, right? It doesn't make any sense. And so like, it's funny to me because I remember going back to last off season. I remember people complaining about the, the zone run scheme and being like, Oh, the reason why the Falcons couldn't run the ball in 2018 is because they run too much zone and they need to go back to being a power team and, and zone is inherently inferior to power. And it's like, no, it's not. If you have zone guys run zone, Tailor your offense to the guys that you have. If you have power guys, if you have, you know, man blocking stuff, then run man blocking. The Falcons have zone blocking guys. They have good guys that can run zone, but yet the Falcons tailored their scheme away from those guys. Doesn't make any sense. And so I thought that that whole narrative was BS then. I still think it's BS now. You know, all those people that were sitting here saying like, oh, zone, the, the reason why the Falcons need to go away from the zone stuff. It's too soft. It's too finesse. It's too what, I don't know, whatever the nonsense people are saying, like, what are you saying now? Cause you know, you look back at the 2019 season where the Falcons went away from that outside zone scheme. And we saw the worst running game that this team has had since, I don't know. Oh, when was the last time? Oh, it was, oh, it happened to be also when Dirk Cutter was the offensive coordinator. Oh, wow. What great coincidence. So here's my hot take. All of that to say, my hot take is, I don't think in order to fix the offense, I don't think you have to change the personnel. I, I, contrary to what others think, I don't think you have to make an investment at the left guard position. I think if you go in the next season, you say we're, we're going to be go back to being outside zone team. And we go Jake Matthews, Matt Gano, Alex, Matt, Chris Lindstrom, Caleb McGarry. Boom. Offensive line is going to look fixed. That's what I'm going to sit here and tell you hot take, but that you're going to fix the offensive line by just doing that. If you ask me. So the question is, what do you do with the the rest of the guys? You know, and I'm looking at you first and foremost, Chris Carpenter. I mean, James Carpenter, you have the option. The Falcons have the option to cut James Carpenter at the outside of free agency. It doesn't really save them money. I think it saves them maybe about a million dollars in some change in terms of cap saving cap savings. If they decide to cut him before his option bonus hits, uh, I think on March 20th. So basically the Falcons have to make a decision because if they're going to cut Carpenter, it's not for cap savings. It's basically, we just want to get out of this contract. We want to just get this player off the team. And so they basically are stuck between the choice of eating 4.1 million, I think in dead money, if they do that uh, in Carpenter, not playing for them, or do they pay the full $5.2 million and have him at least compete for a roster spot or whatever the case may be. That's really the choice the Falcons have ahead of them. I don't know what choices they're going to make, because Carpenter has that pass with Dan Quinn and Chris Morgan, I have the feeling that they're going to wind up keeping him, but we'll we'll see how that goes. You're in a similar boat with Jamon Brown. Brown's cap hit is going to be six point six million in twenty twenty, and you would if you cut him, you're going to even take a bigger hit because he's going to have eight point two million dollars in dead money. So. Cutting him is out of the cards. The only real option the Falcons have if they want to move on from Jamon Brown is to trade him um, and ask another team to basically try to take on that guaranteed salary that he has coming to him in 2020. I'm certainly, as I've mentioned before in the podcast, I would certainly be open to exploring those trade options. 
I wouldn't be overly optimistic that you will be able to find a deal because essentially the only team that's going to be probably willing to take on Jamon Brown is a team that has a lot of cap space. So they won't mind taking on his big cap hit and also has such a massive hole at one of their guard positions that they're going to potentially look at Jamon Brown as an upgrade. No offense to Jamon Brown, but you know, he's been by and large a league average guard at best throughout his career. Really, when I'm looking around the league, I'm sort of looking at him saying, like, Miami's really the only team in that position that has throwaway draft capital, has a ton of cap space, and has serious issues on their offensive line that I think they could look at Jamon Brown and see that's an upgrade over what we currently have. We'll see if I'm wrong on that. But basically, outside of a, trading him to Miami, I don't necessarily see trading him as a likely outcome. So you're not really probably going to get a lot of value for him. Maybe you get a seventh-round pick. This year, maybe you get a conditional late round pick in a future year. Maybe you can pull off a player for player trade as we get closer to the draft or later this summer in preseason when those trades tend to happen a little bit more and maybe get a cheap depth option at another position that can help you out. That's really sort of the best case scenario. Really, at this point in time, you either choices to dump Jamon Brown for the basically pennies um, to get something for nothing. Um, or you just keep him and hope that he can bounce back and be healthier this upcoming season. You also got to decide what you're going to do with Wes Schweitzer. Do you resign him? He's a free agent. As I've said the past two years, he's been a better left guard. You know, he's basically a league average starter at that position. I think really the value of Schweitzer is he's kind of a litmus test. You know that your offensive line can function with him as a starter, as we've seen in 2017 and 2018 and for parts of 2019. And so if you bring him to camp, whether it's Brown, whether it's Carpenter, whether it's Gano or whoever it is, if that guy can beat out Wes Schweitzer for the starting left guard position, then you know that you have the potential to have an average to above average starting left guard at the very least at that spot. That's really what Schweitzer's value is that litmus test to be like, okay, if he's better than White Schweschler, I know that we're going to have functional to good offensive line play at that left guard position. So when you're the Falcons, then you have to ask the question, how do you value that? Basically, he's a high-level backup slash functional starter, so do you pay him like that? And so typically the market for that type of player at the guard position is a contract averaging between 2 and $4 million. And if you're the Falcons, given that you're already – set to pay regardless of what you decide to do with Brown and Carpenter, you're going to wind up having those guys eat up about 10 or $12 million of your salary cap, pretty much regardless of what you do with those guys. Does it make sense to throw on another two to 4 million to keep Schweitzer, even though again, arguably Schweitzer is better than both of those guys, or at least certainly performed like that in, in 2019, you know, if you could get Schweitzer on the cheap, if you could get him on like a one, one and a half million dollar contract, one year type of deal. I think it would make sense to bring him back. But if you're going to have to pay more than that to get Schweitzer back, it doesn't make a lot of sense to bring him back and, and to basically not say waste, you know, two to $4 million in salary cap. Because again, I think you can make a compelling argument that he is an upgrade over those guys, but he's not a problem. He's not solving the problem at left guard. He's just basically a stop gap at best really at that left guard position. Then you move on to Ty Sambrello. He's got a $5.75 million cap hit. And similar to what I mentioned on yesterday's episode with Lou Stocker, I think he's pretty much as close as a slam dunk as we're going to get to a cap cut. You're going to free up about $3.75 million by cutting him. With Gano on the team, with McGarry clearly being the future, it doesn't make that much sense to pay him to be basically a, a backup and basically a, a number three tight end at this point in time. 
then you look at John Wetzel, the other free agent, impending free agent. I think Wetzel's a good option as sort of that one-year veteran minimum contract, especially if you're not able to successfully re-sign Wes Schweitzer. You know, I think he can be a, a, a decent option as a backup option as your swing tackle if you wind up having Matt Gano move from that spot to being the potential starting left guard. So if Matt Gano winds up winning the starting left guard spot, you need an, a swing tackle. And again, you should be moving on from Ty Sambrello. Um, you know, so John Wetzel is sort of your, your plan C, I guess, or your plan B as far as a swing tackle. So that's where he makes sense uh, because of that versatility as well. I sit here wondering, maybe maybe this is finally going to be the offseason, 2020, where the Falcons' offensive line actually makes moves, and I actually approve of their offensive line decisions. Um, but basically, if I'm if I'm serving as their consultant, and I would love to get cut them to cut me a check, you know, I would basically cut Carpenter just to get out of that contract. I would probably let Schweitzer walk. I would wind up having Gano and, and Jamon Brown compete for that open left guard spot. Um, if Brown wins it, great. Then maybe you can finally justify that contract. If Ghana wins it, even better. Um, then you just have a, a good, talented player, and you're just going to have to just eat that Jamon Brown contract and have him be the backup at both guard spots. I'd probably re-sign John Wetzel, um, or at least try to bring in somebody like a John Wetzel that has that scheme versatility, the positional versatility that can play four out of five positions that can be an extra body at the swing tackle position. If Ghana winds up winning that left guard spot, or it can be a backup guard. If Brown winds up winning that spot and you're, you're just basically looking for a guy that can be a body because if everything goes according to plan, that guy's going to be inactive every single week anyway. So, you know, that's really what you're looking for. A guy that can come in and compete for a roster spot in the summer and potentially play, you know, four or five uh, backup spots along your offensive line. Um, then when you get to the draft, I think you've got to focus on and prioritize getting a young center that can be the heir apparent to Alex Mack. With the plan fully to have Alex Mack be the, with the Falcons in 2020, I know there's, you know, talk of the possibility of Alex Mack being a cap cut because the Falcons could wind up saving a significant amount of cap space. Uh, $8 million by cutting Alex Mack. But I think if you do that, you're going to completely destabilize your offensive line. Um, you know, and if you're trying to save money on Alex Mack's deal, you do it by restructuring, you do it by extending it, you do whatever you can to sort of lower that $10.55 million cap hit. But in no shape or form, do I think cutting him should be considered an option. The only reason that Alex Mack won't be playing for the Falcons in 2020, if you're asking me again, as your offensive line consultant, is if he decides to hang up the cleats and decides to retire between now and and September 1st. And if that's the case, then you're pretty much screwed anyway. Um, So yeah, I would draft a young center this year with the idea that Alex Mack is going to sort of be the starter for 2020, possibly beyond, but um, with the idea that there's a strong probability or possibility that Alex Mack decides to hang it up in 2021. And then I have that young center waiting in the wings that got a year you know, watching Alex Mack and, and trying to figure things out and will be at least more ready to step in in 2021 to be the starter than that guy would potentially be in 2020. Um, you know, I like Sean Harlow. I'm not going to sit here and buy him as the 
potential heir apparent. Perhaps I could have had the Falcons done what I had consulted them to do two years ago and actually started getting him center reps that maybe at least by now entering 2020, we would at least maybe think, oh, maybe Sean Harlow can be our uh, heir apparent to Alex Mack, the center, or at least know whether or not he could be. But of course, they decided not to play him at center because the Falcons... (laughs) (laughs) clearly you know i have some pent-up frustration and rage when it comes to this falcon team but the sort of the last point because we're we're running long here because again i could i could go another 45 minutes talking you know talking trash about dan quinn and his inability to evaluate offensive line thomas dimitrov as well lumped into that group chris morgan and his inability to develop offensive linemen and god knows what dirt cutter's doing when he's trying to scheme an offensive line or a running game and whatnot but i will not do that today maybe we'll save that for a rant episode when i'm in the middle of a week come you know the end of march or whatever and I just need content to throw up and, and need something to complain about. So we'll, we'll see what, what comes with that. But the last point I will make is in terms of where you're going to target that young center, I think somewhere in that round two to four range, again, I'm not necessarily up on this year's draft class, but from what I understand, what I hear, there are a number of guys that are being projected to be, you know, top 100 type of centers, top 120 whenever type of sin is three or four guys that I'm seeing that are people are talking about as potential projections in that sort of range. Hopefully you can land one of those guys. Hopefully that's going to be a guy that again, because the Falcons are going to be committed to a zone blocking scheme will be a guy that can excel in a zone blocking scheme. Um, and, and that's sort of what you're looking for with this draft pick. Ideally, that's going to be a guy, as I've mentioned before, that also has some potential to double as a guard that is big enough and strong enough that you can say, oh, he's, he can he could also play some guard for you. And you can throw him into that left guard competition with the Jamon Browns, with the Matt Gonnells, with the James Carpenters or the West Schweitzer, depending on what the Falcons wind up doing. And also, you know be an option to maybe potentially start day one at left guard. If he's good enough uh, before moving to the center position in 2021 or beyond. Um, But if I'm being completely honest with you again, although I've already laid out sort of what I would do if I was consulting the Falcons, I literally have no idea what they're going to do in terms of keeping Carpenter or keeping Brown re-signing Schweitzer. You could convince me of any number of combinations. Uh, we could easily be sitting here in May and be like, well, I guess Matt Gonnell's not going to get an opportunity to compete at the left guard position. I guess the Falcons wound up drafting another guard, you know, on day two of the draft or something like that. Any number. I, I literally have no idea what they're going to do because again, if you ask me, th- their decisions when it comes to evaluating and particularly self-evaluating their offensive line are very questionable. So whatever questionable decision you think they could make is definitely a viable option, at least in my eyes, when it comes to the offensive line, I hate to sort of leave it on that note, but a lot of frustration with this offensive line been in a, area of concern for many, many years. And I feel like the Falcons sort of, you know, they're reaping what they have sown over the years of basically not neglecting this position, particularly when it has come to the draft and, and hoping that they can sort of just throw money at the position and hope that it would solve their problems. And now they're coming to realize that their last couple of investments there with Fusco, with Brown, with Carpenter have kind of completely blown up in their face. And now they're reaping what they have sown because they just thought that that would be more, viable than investing 
talented draft picks, early round draft picks into talented players. Um, and again, when you look at Lindstrom and, and, and McGarry and, and Jake Matthews, when they have made those investments and we're hoping with Lindstrom and McGarry that they back up this belief, but they have worked out for the team more often than not in the last couple of years, free agent signings, eh, whatever. But there you guys have it. I'm done now. I'm done ranting about the offensive line. I, I, again, I could probably go another 30, 45 minutes about this, but I'll let it go there. And we will wrap up this week by looking at the D line or maybe we will do a mailbag. I don't know. We, we, we got a couple of Q and a questions in the, in the tailpipe. So yeah, I think we'll wind up doing a Q and a either Friday or Monday. I haven't made a decision yet. So D line possibly, I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing guys. Uh, now I'm sitting here. Like I had originally planned to do D line tomorrow. And then we do like a mock draft Monday on Monday and maybe do answer some of those listener questions. But now I'm kind of like, yeah, maybe I want to do a Q and a tomorrow. Maybe I want to take a break, you know, just sort of delineate. Now that we've wrapped up the offense and maybe you guys can send in some additional questions uh, as well as some of the other ones that we have it in the mailbag. And of course you can send those to locked on Falcons at mail.com. That's the email address. You can also post them on social media to the shows, various social media accounts locked on Falcons. Of course is the name of both the Twitter account as well as the Facebook page. So you can submit those questions there as well. Um, any type of feedback that you want to give, please rate us five stars on Apple podcast, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you're listening to this podcast, uh, as well. So, um, there you have, you have it, send in those questions or whatever, and, uh, we'll, we'll see when we can, what we do tomorrow, D line or mailbag Q and a, we'll see. So until then, you are locked on Falcons, your daily podcast on the Atlanta Falcons, part of the locked on podcast network, your team every day.